Well, this year we're uh, working through the books of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They're near the end of your Bible. They're two short books that were written by the Apostle Paul to his friend Timothy, while Timothy was sent to Ephesus. We're just going verse by verse, passage by passage through this text, and today we're in chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 7. I'd like to read our text, and when I finish verse 7, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Follow along, please, as I read, beginning 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and then look into this text together this morning. Father, we ask that you would Open our hearts to receive your word, that you would cause us to trust you that you are good. Surely goodness and mercy will follow us because you are the good shepherd who's leading us. So help us to hear your voice. Father, if there's something that you want to change in me, would you change that? If there's something you want to change in our church, would you change us? Because we want to glorify you and we want your name to be spread in this place. And so it's in the strong name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, I have some bad news for you this morning. Christmas has passed and what you want doesn't matter. Well, at least for another 11 months. You know how November and December go. Your kids make wish lists. I had one posted on the refrigerator. I mean, it was long. <laughs> Your spouse now sends you Amazon links with various items to order, subtly saying, stop getting the wrong brand, the wrong color, and the wrong size. Just order this. Thank you, honey. There may be a few of you in here who are still writing letters to Santa, old baggy pants, as my mother-in-law calls him. You know how that works. You, you itemize all of the over-the-top things that you want because you've been such a good person and life works transactionally that way. And so you list them, put them in an envelope, and send them to the North Pole, no stamp required. 
No, I, I still love the story of St. Nick, especially the true one. The one of Nicholas of Myra. He's the historical figure behind Santa Claus. Reportedly, he slapped Arius for speaking heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325. True story. Now, I don't have pay-per-view, but that's a fight night that I would pay for. So think about it. Wish lists, Amazon links, letters to Santa Claus. We as a people are pretty tuned in to the things that we desire. But have you ever wondered what God desires? Have you ever looked at what he wants? In our text this morning, we encounter the plain statement of divine desire. And it's a statement, my friends, that should warm your heart today. Notice verse number three. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Look at what he wants. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. My friends, maybe I could say it like this. God desires salvation for everyone. To all of you who are here this morning, I can say this confidently. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to know the truth. There's no social status, race, age, sex, ethnicity that is outside of God's heart of salvation. It's not as though there's a circle of God's love and then there's those people over there, whoever those people are. No, my friends, you know this verse. It's perhaps the most famous in the New Testament. John 3.16 says, God so loved the what? world, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, we can't be sure about all the details of the struggle that was happening in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter of 1 Timothy. It's like we only hear one side of the phone conversation. But there are some contextual hints that help us understand some of the opposition that Paul was addressing in this letter. There seemed to be church leaders who were more like wolves than sheep. We get that from Acts chapter 20, verse 29. They used their wealth and prominence in the community to secure places of influence in the church. We get that from 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he starts talking about the abuse of wealth and the pursuit of riches as though that's godliness. These social elites, these false teachers, or in chapter 1 he calls them these certain persons, they were creating insider clubs Platinum memberships in the church, kind of like these VIP inner circles. Salvation, they would teach, is just for, and then you fill in the blank, a select group of people. And so Paul, in chapter two, is speaking up, and he's speaking out against that wrong teaching. 
He's saying in verse number four that God, our Savior, look at verse four, desires all people, not just some people. He desires all people to be saved. There's no nationalistic monopoly on God. There's no privileged favorites with God. There's no tribalism or classism or parochialism when it comes to God. It's almost as though this text is telling us to get rid of our pride and prejudice because God desires salvation for everyone. Now, in saying that, I realize that we need to pause for a second because some of you in here who are theologically attuned might be struggling right now. You're saying to yourself, so Lucas, if God wants everyone to be saved, then why doesn't that happen? And furthermore, how does his grand desire fit in with divine election? How do those two coincide? Friend, if you're thinking that, then those are great questions. If you're not thinking that, I hope you're awake now. In saying that God desires all people to be saved, does that mean that we should subscribe to a sort of universalism? The belief that all people will be saved. Is that what we should conclude? The logic of universalism goes like this. Since God desires all people to be saved, and God always gets what he desires, in the end, everyone will be saved. That's the logic of universalism. But that is not what this passage or scripture as a whole teaches. Let me illustrate it this way. God desires all people to keep his commandments, doesn't he? You can amen, say amen. Thank you for being awake. Yes, God desires all people to keep his commandments. And since God always gets what he desires, everyone always keeps his commandments, right? No. Do you see there's a breakdown or a logical fallacy in this syllogism? And it's breaking down on the word desire. You see, there are things God desires and things God decrees. His will of desire can be resisted. His will of decree cannot. And that's where God's elective purposes come into the picture. Jonathan Edwards in 1755 in his book, The Freedom of the Will, it's kind of a, a play on words from Luther's book called The Bondage of the Will. Jonathan Edwards wrote that men are naturally able to believe the gospel, but morally unable to do so. While man can believe, no man will believe without receiving the Holy Spirit's effectual calling that frees his will from the moral captivity it's in, and thereby enabling saving faith. God's will of desire in salvation is this. Listen, I want to be super clear. God's will of desire in salvation is this. He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come 
to repentance. That's 2 Peter 3, 9. But listen, without hearing the word of Christ, without being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, without being drawn by the Father, none will repent. So this is not an expression in our text of universalism. It's like, it's like one side of a tension bridge. You know about tension bridges, right? The bridge stays up because of the pole. The pole on one side and the opposing pole on the other are good. Now the word tension often has a negative connotation. When we think of tension, we think about mitigating tension or relieving tension or resolving tension. But when it comes to bridges, the tension is good. So I had my daughter help me with this illustration. Some of us don't like tension. And so we're more inclined to side with this side of theology or side with this side of theology and we struggle with certain passages in the scripture. But can I suggest to you that the tension is okay? Because sometimes truth is held in tension. We have to be faithful to God's word, all of God's word. And here in our text, we have one side of the tension bridge. So don't negate it, don't mitigate it, don't try to relieve it or resolve it. Receive it and believe it. Sometimes things seem to pull in the opposite direction, yet that antinomy, that tension, is the very way that some scriptural truths are upheld. Look at this text, though, and, and don't lose the point. God wants, verse number four, all people to be saved. That means you. It means your family, your neighbor, your coworker, and people on the other side of the globe. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire is inclusive. But let me be clear. The pathway is exclusive. In other words, it's only through Jesus. Remember what Peter preached in Acts chapter four, verse number 11. This is what he said. Jesus is the stone that was rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. My friends, the implication of that is this. When Vatican II purported that quote, and they use our text today, and this is why I'm bringing it up. They wrongly suggested that, quote, those who have not yet accepted the gospel are related to the people of God, including the Jews, a people in virtue of their election, beloved for the sake of the fathers. The Muslims who acknowledge the creator, hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us, they adore the one merciful God. And those who in shadows and images seek the unknown God, though through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ. Do, do you catch what they're saying here? You don't have to know the gospel of Christ. 
You can continue in a religion that denies the messiahship and deity of Jesus. You can mitigate Christ to a mere prophet, but still be related to the people of God. You can seek after shadows and images and not know the gospel of Christ, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart. These too may attain eternal salvation since the Savior, look at, they try to quote this verse. Since the Savior wills everyone to be saved, see 1 Timothy 2.4. No, my friends, they are sadly wrong. Remember what Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. God will not be found through Mohammed, through Joseph, through Lucas, or through anyone else. He will not be discovered in shadows or images or idols. He will only be found through Jesus. Because as Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So look back at our text at this pungent point in verse number five. Look at verse five. There is one God. There aren't all kinds of gods. It's not a divine smorgasbord. You don't get to go to the golden corral of deity and pick whatever you want. No, my friends, verse five, there is one God. There's one God and only one pathway to him, namely Jesus. So the first point in this text I'm trying to highlight is this. Verse four, God desires salvation for everyone. There's only one way of salvation, my friends, and that is through Christ. The good news is that here's our second point. Christ died as a ransom for everyone. God desires the salvation of everyone, and good news, Christ died as a ransom for everyone. Look at verse number five. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, this is an important part of Paul's point in the text because some might concur with the first part of verse five. There's only one God. There are other monotheists besides Christians. Islam and Judaism are monotheistic religions. Animists look to a supreme being. Go to AA and someone might talk about a higher power. But Paul's argument here isn't just that there's one God, but that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, you know what a mediator is, right? It's someone who stands in between opposing parties in order to bring them to peace. It's someone who takes adversaries and reconciles them. A mediator is an intermediary in legal disputes, a negotiator in business deals. My friends, that's what Job longed for when he spoke of God in Job 9.33. Job longed for a mediator. Listen to what he says. He says, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hands on both of us. 
If only there was someone who could stretch their hands and span the gap between God and man. If only there was someone that could bridge the chasm between heaven and earth, between a holy God and sinful humanity. If only there was someone who could stand in the middle and represent both sides. Well, Paul says there is. And that mediator's name is Jesus. You see, in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4, the eternal son of God took upon himself a complete human nature, body and soul, and as such became the perfect go-between, the God-man. He took on flesh to dwell among us, John 1.14. So we have here in our text a uniquely suited representative, an intercessor, a mediator, But how could this mediator possibly bring peace? I mean, the scriptures say this, the wages of sin is death. So on one side of the table, you have a holy God. On the other side of the table, you have sinners like us. And what we deserve is death. And so we come to the table of mediation. And we say, well, judge, who's just and holy and knows all things, and I I can't give you any excuses. Well, judge. We're here to mediate. And I think what I can offer you, instead of the death penalty, I'll give you some money. God shakes his head. Well, instead of the death penalty, I'll give you some of my good works. I'll try really hard. And God shakes his head. I'll I'll go to church. He shakes his head. The wages of sin is death. So how can this mediator bring these two parties, when we're at enmity against God, how can we be brought to peace when it's the death penalty that's demanded? Well, the mediator stops the negotiations and says, I'll take the death penalty for them. That's what he does. Verse number six, he gives himself. Do you see that? You've got nothing to bring to the table. You can't work out an agreement. There's no negotiating with God here. The mediator says, I'll take it. He gives himself, it says, as a ransom for all. I mean, think of a hijacking situation where the criminals are demanding a ransom. Our freedom, our salvation cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. He paid the greatest price to buy back what was rightfully his to begin with. I mean, I don't think we really understand the depth or the weight of a ransom payment until we first acknowledge that we belonged to God to begin with. In other words, he's having to buy back what already belongs to him. Remember, he created you. He made you so that you would glorify him. And instead, all of us turned away from him in rebellion and went our own way. And when we finally came to the end of our game, when we finally hit rock bottom, when we get to the bottom of the barrel and we've got nothing left and we're on the slave block of sin, that's when Christ comes and says, I'll give my life as a ransom to buy them back. Have you ever had to buy back something that's already yours? Do you know how that feels? In 2004, I moved to Wichita Falls, Texas with Liesl and our little baby boy, AKA Elijah, wherever he is here. And that's like a long time ago. 
we had this running stroller, which was made by Gerber, and back then it was like, wow. Everyone has one now, but I mean, that was like, wow. It was a running stroller that had a car seat that clicked into it, and then it had a base that was in your car so the car seat could come out and click into your car. It was a really, I mean, it was smooth. This was a sweet running stroller. And uh, I would put Elijah in that, and I would go on runs. And this one particular day, I left it out in front on our porch, went to bed, and the next morning I woke up to find that it had what? Been stolen, of course. It wasn't even here in Salt Lake City. I mean, this is in Texas. It had been stolen. It was gone. And I thought, there's, there's really nothing we can do. Until I got a phone call from one of the ladies in the church, and she was at a resale store. She said, I heard that your running stroller got stolen. Is this it? And she took a picture of a running stroller. It was exact same make, model, color. And as I zoomed in on the picture, I knew it was mine. Do you know how? It still had the moving sticker that matched the whole batch of all of our moving stickers still on the spoke. So I thought, yes. I go down to the resale store. I bring some of the other moving stickers that match the whole batch. I say, ours got stolen. This is our stroller. Notice the sticker on the spoke. It's the same one that matches our whole batch of moving boxes and the woman would not give me my stroller back. In Texas. She pulled a gun on me. No, she didn't do that. That's not the true part of the story. She just wouldn't give it back to me. So listen, do you know what I had to do as much as it pained me? I had to buy back what was already mine. My friends, do you realize that's what Christ did for you? He gave up his life so that he could buy back what already belonged to him. He gave himself, verse 6, as a ransom for all. Again, this isn't saying that everyone automatically is saved. Instead, we should understand that his payment was sufficient for all but efficient for those who believe. In other words, just like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.10, we'll get to it later in our series, but 1 Timothy 4.10, we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. He died as a ransom for all and it's applied to those who believe. Again, truth, intention. But I don't want you to miss the point of Christ here. Christ is the unique go-between. He's the God-man mediator. He died on the cross, took the penalty we deserved in order to pay our ransom. He truly is, as John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He paid the price that only man could owe, but only God could pay. We've seen from our text, number one, that God desires salvation for everyone. Number two, that Christ died as a ransom for everyone. And those are two immense realities. So how are we supposed to respond to those truths? Well, Paul says this in our text, kind of like bookends at the beginning and the end. 
because of God's desire for everyone and Christ's death for everyone, we should, number one, pray for everyone. I mean, does it make sense? Like, I could have just started this message and said, look at verse one, start praying for everyone. You'd have been like, yeah, I know that's good. I need to pray more. Yep. I went to prayer week, already forgot. Yep. I mean, we could do that, right? But I wanted to start in the middle of the text because I want you to understand why you should pray. Because of God's desire for everyone and Christ's death for everyone, we should pray for everyone. That's kind of why in the opening of this text. We need, remember, Paul's already trying to, say, he's trying to tell Timothy, listen, Timothy, wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight of the faith. And, and before Timothy goes to get pitchforks and big torches and start a riot, he says, and I want you to fight the good fight of the faith on your knees. I mean, that's how this text opens. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, verse one, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Oh, we need to pray. God loves all people. Christ died for all people. So start praying for all people. And here we are, we're, we're just about ready to start praying. Like, oh, all right, I need to pray. Lord, I just wanna pray first that you would help me. Help me to do what is right. And, Help me to have a good life and help me to, I don't know, make more money too. And if I could have a Tesla along the way, I wouldn't mind that too, Lord. And it, oh, and pray for my spouse too. I pray for my spouse and my, and, and my kids. Yeah, all my kids. And pray for my neighbors. And then, um, oh, my friends. I pray for my friends. And then, um, and then the whole world. Amen. Now, we have this tendency of praying sometimes in these concentric circles of priority, and they normally start right here. And think about the last time you prayed. Did it start with you? We start in the closest circle, and then we get to our family, and then our friends, and then maybe some neighbors before we fall asleep or have to quit. He actually reverses it in this text. Do you see that? Just as we're ready to fight the good fight of the faith on our knees and start praying and start with me, he says, wait, wait, I want you to go to the outer ring and start that way. Why don't you just go ahead and pray for the kings and the authorities, the leaders in your life, verse two, kings and all who are in high positions. Wow. I don't know. I, you know, I have to encounter the word just like you do, and then I'm convicted and I'm like, I'm going to have to preach this. And I stink. <laughs> because I pray in those concentric rings too. And God is teaching me to start out here. And start praying for leaders. I mean, come on, when was the last time? I mean, besides joining Jotham in prayer, when was the last time you prayed for President Biden or Governor Cox or Senator Mitt Romney or Congressman John Curtis or Mayor Mendenhall? or Councilman Darren Mano, when was the last time you prayed for those leaders? Do they make your list often? Do they make your list at all? Here, Paul is telling us, start praying from there. Now, some of us are like, yeah, well, Paul, you know, he's an apostle, and way back in the first century when everything was perfect in the church, they all had good leaders, 
not like the ones we have. Oh God, we just pray for all of our nice leaders like Nero and Trajan and Domitian and all the other ones who persecuted the church and killed the Christians. Do you see? No, no, we we can't write this off as though, oh, they had good leaders to pray for. That's why they did. No, friends, there were no Christian kings or authorities in high positions at the time of this letter. They were persecutors and perverts. They were opposers and obstinate idolaters, and Paul instructs the church to pray for them. And I'm not talking about imprecatory prayers, because some of you are trying to find loopholes. No. He says we're supposed to pray for these leaders, the same ones we suffer under. Pray for these rulers, the ones we don't agree with. Pray for those we didn't vote for. Pray for our leaders. Though some of us think that real influence is in the voting polls. You know, you hear, get out and vote. Paul would say real influence is in the prayer closets. Get on your knees and pray. And we have an example of this form of commendable prayer from some early Christians. In 140 AD, there's a letter from a man named Clement of Rome. He writes to the church of Corinth, and this is what he writes. It's a prayer for government leaders in this letter. He writes this. Grant them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability so that they may give no offense in administering the government you have given them. Or here's another one by Tertullian. I don't have a slide for this one, but it just goes like this. This is 200 AD. We pray also for the emperors, for their ministers, and those in power, that their reign may continue, that the state may be at peace, and that the end of the world may be postponed. Get to prayer. Use a list. Use an app. This is one that I'm using right now. This was actually developed by two of our deacons. It's called Praley. I just entered in our government officials with a reminder on Wednesday to pray for them. Get a list. Use an app. Take the bookmark we gave you this morning. Just pray. Folks, when the church Praise, it is pleasing to God. The word there was the same word that was used in the Septuagint of sacrifices, this sweet-smelling aroma, incense that would rise to God. The prayer is sweet to him and acceptable to him and pleasing to him. So trace the argument here. God desires salvation for everyone. Christ died as a ransom for everyone. So in response, we're supposed to pray for everyone. But there's one last thing. And that is that we're supposed to proclaim the gospel to everyone. And this comes from the very last verse, verse number seven. In verse seven, we see Paul talking specifically about his own unique role as an apostle. But what he says applies largely to every follower of Christ. And I think that's why it's included in our text. Look at verse seven. For this, meaning the testimony of Christ dying as a ransom for all, for this testimony, I was appointed And he gives a list of three things, a preacher and an apostle. Listen, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles. Now, where you see the word Gentiles, it's the word ethnon or a teacher of the nations. It's the same word for nations or peoples of the world. A teacher of the peoples of the world in faith and truth. 
I don't know if you've been tracing this through the text, but the word all, you could kind of go through and start circling it. Thanksgiving for all. All who are in high positions. All people to be saved. A ransom for all. But here in this last verse, Paul is indicating that he is a preacher of the Gentiles or the nations or literally of all. Abraham Kurovila, this New Testament scholar, traces the idea this way. He says, yet another all may be implied in Paul's appointment to the Gentiles in chapter 2, verse 7. A vast throng of people and nation, literally, he says, I'm a teacher to all the world. The emphasis in this last verse is less on Paul's office as an apostle and more as him being a teacher to all the nations. In other words, folks, the gospel is supposed to be proclaimed to all, to everyone. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Isn't that what Jesus commissioned his disciples to do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The same word that Paul uses in our text this morning. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now this might sound like old news, but unfortunately believers have struggled with this responsibility to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Over the centuries, we've had missionaries. We've heard of Hudson Taylor and the China Inland Mission, 1865. We've heard of Cameron Townsend and the Wycliffe Bible Translators, 1934. But long before them, in 1785, a courageous pastor named Andrew Fuller published the gospel worthy of all acceptation. He argued that Christian ministers, listen, this is a pastor having to argue with other pastors that it was their duty to urge all men to repent and trust Christ Jesus as their savior. Fuller wrote this book as a very countercultural piece in his time because many pastors believed that God would work out his elective purposes on his own. As a matter of fact, Fuller was trying to communicate at a pastor's conference and share with them their duty to proclaim the gospel to the lost. And one pastor stood up and said this to him, quote, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Andrew Fuller spoke out against that and instead he insisted that God has chosen to use means, namely us, in the spread of the gospel. We actually need to preach it and proclaim it. We need to herald it and teach it. I think that's why in our text, Paul is saying, listen, I'm a preacher and I'm an apostle. I'm a teacher of the gospel to all. That's what we're supposed to be like. Well, Andrew Fuller's book influenced a key individual named William Carey. It led to the publication of Carey's Mission Manifesto in 1792 entitled, quote, this is really a long title, An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. This is Carey and Fuller right here. Carey and Fuller urged the clergy of their day to embrace the free preaching of the gospel to the lost. Carey wrote this, Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. 
We must not be contented with praying without exerting ourselves in the use of means for the obtaining of those things we pray for. In other words, yes, pray, but don't stop there. Proclaim. Proclaim the good news to everyone. Ultimately, these two men, along with 10 others, started the Particular Baptist Missionary Society. William Carey was sent as a missionary to India, and he labored there for 40 years, known as the father of modern missions. Before Carey left, he said this to his longtime friend, Andrew Fuller. I will go down if you will hold the rope. And so together they extended the gospel to the ethnon, the nations, in faith and truth. My friends, our preaching is not done until it has reached the far horizons of God's concern. And that extends to all the nations. So may God's desire and Christ's death compel us to preach and pray until all have heard. Let's close in prayer. My friends, this is the time in our service where we respond to the word of the Lord. And I just wonder, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, how many of you are just burdened to be more of a praying or more of a proclaiming people of God. I want to give you a few moments of just some quiet music like you reflect on the word of the Lord and respond to him. Maybe he's convicted you about prayer or maybe he's convicted you about proclaiming the good news. Ask him to give you grace. Ask him to give you opportunities. Ask him to give you help.